On this episode of the Unsettled Hunter podcast, I speak with Gabrielle Slowey from York University. Gabrielle is an associate professor of political science as well as the director of the Robarts Center for Canadian Studies. Topics of discussion include Gabrielle's extensive research work with Indigenous people on such issues as self-government, environmental politics, and the political economics of resource extraction. We also discuss Gabrielle's career development and finish the episode with a whopper of a fish story. Thank you for listening. Would you like to introduce yourself? Okay, sure. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Dr. Gabrielle Slowey. I'm an associate professor here at York University in the Department of Political Science. I'm also the director of the Robart Center for Canadian Studies. I am also the uh, former, I guess, inaugural Fulbright Chair in Arctic Studies uh, at Dartmouth College uh, from 2016 to 2017. To obtain these titles, what was the research that got you here? Well, it's an interesting <laughs> or story. What's the, or, yeah, either your whole research career or uh, research related to uh, hunting and fishing or okay, knowledge well, of the land. Fishing. Um, so I happen to have um, started my fly fishing career when I was 19. Oh. Uh, so I've been fly fishing for many years now in northern Quebec uh, on the North Shore, not too far from a river called the Moise, which is a very famous salmon, fish, salmon river in northern Quebec. Um, and uh, the river is uh, La Rivière Saint-Jean, uh, near uh, Mangang. And uh, I've had the pleasure of uh, being invited to fish there um, regularly, um, on and off almost annually for the last 25 years or so um, for Atlantic salmon. And seeing the evolution of salmon going from where we could catch up to five salmon a season and keep them to now being very involved with the Atlantic Salmon Federation in terms of catch and release studying migration patterns and trying to understand um, the decline of salmon stocks that are coming into Quebec and uh, understanding those dynamics and working with them. But that's, uh, that was just a personal um, experience. But that did exp um, I did engage with some of the First Nations in those communities and learn about some of their fishing and um, portaging in the region. Um, there was a Jean-Charles Piedchot who was the uh, chief of the uh, Mangang First Nation. Um, so I've met with him and some of the others in Sitil. Uh, but again, that was sort of a personal um, experience in fishing. But uh, in terms of um, my trajectory, I uh, was uh, an undergrad at the University of Toronto who was going to be a constitutional lawyer and uh, <laughs> uh, ended up taking a fourth year course. Um, and I'd done a lot of political science and constitutional courses. And I wanted to take a course that wasn't what I thought to be very political. And it was called um, something like the Politics of the Northwest Territories. And I signed up for this course, and I got into it, and I thought, I immediately started learning about the Northwest Territories, and I thought, how is it I got through four years of undergraduate without ever learning about indigenous peoples, governance, northern governance, um, and any of those dynamics? And I just suddenly became a bit of a sponge for wanting to learn more. I volunteered at the um, Native Canadian Center downtown on Spadina and wanted to learn about the culture of indigenous peoples. And from there, I ended up doing my master's in New Brunswick and working a lot with the Mackamack and Malisee communities. So there I was working with a wonderful woman, um, Andrea Bear-Nicholas, uh, whose uh, family is still you know, very traditional, like go fiddlehead picking, and uh, she taught me the traditional Malisee way to make salmon. And uh, you know, I was involved in the community there. Some, there was a bit of hunting, a lot of forestry. 
but uh, and I got a lot of academic um, and personal growth there. But then I moved to Alberta, and that's I think when things really changed. Uh, my first job out of my masters was working for the Miccosukee Cree First Nation. And uh, I was their self-government officer, so I wasn't a nurse or a teacher, so I was very much involved in the uh, First Nation and working for the First Nation. And uh, um, we didn't do a lot of hunting. I remember one night walking home and seeing a duck fly by, and I said, oh, look, a duck. And someone said, oh, look, dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, we did, we did go out in the land a bit when I was up there. Um, and, you know, I had a lot of things like duck heart is considered a delicacy. You know, we had a lot of dry meat. Uh, a lot of dry fish, and that was back in the day when there was actually a very active fishing industry in Fort Chipewyan, which unfortunately due to the pollution in the Delta is no longer the case. Um, but so there was a lot of, you know, what we call it, what country food is what, I guess what us settlers call it, is country <laughs> food, but they just call it their, you know, diet. Um, so I was, you know, very much immersed in working with the Miccosukee Cree, and from, since then I've had opportunities um, to go hunting and trapping with other communities. So I finished my PhD in Alberta and I got a postdoctoral fellowship. And during my postdoctoral fellowship, I engaged in two projects. One was I went bush camping with the James Bay Cree for a week in March in minus 50. Oh boy. Yeah, so I flew, I, we drove to Quebec City and then up to Ujibugumu. Um, and we spent, put on some snowshoes and actually the ladies there, love, lovely ladies, I have a picture of them. Um, actually. This picture here is from them. Is from that time. Um, is um, they made me like my own um, snowshoes, moccasins, and so we snowshoed out to the bush. And on the way out, we picked up a hare that we trapped, and we got there and we ripped the. It's, it's like peeling a sweater off of somebody, like taking the skin off the <laughs> hair. And we cut all up and had dinner that night. And then we went out and next day and got a beaver, which had been trapped underneath the ice. And we brought that back and cut that up and ate it. And then we went and got a goose. And uh, so every day we went out sort of hunting and trapping and stuff like that with the James Bay Cree. And that was, I learned to love camping outdoors in the winter <laughs> and uh, slept on bearskin rugs and stuff. Um, so that was wonderful. And then my second part of that project was going to New Zealand and comparing some of the Canadian um, and New Zealand experiences. Um, and since then, I have done research projects across the high Arctic. So working with um, the Buntukwichin of Old Crow we, I was really optimistic and hopeful to see caribou when I was out there, um, but unfortunately that year they didn't come through town. And we'd go out in the land looking for them, but that year we didn't see <laughs> any um, because the Porcupine Caribou River runs through um, basically Old Crow, and there's a, no, it's a natural migration pattern. And then the other community I worked in was uh, was uh, Tuk Jetuk, um, and so there is more of again sea based. So we had some you know whale blubber and stuff like that when I was there, which is muktuk, right? The dried. Yeah. Whale blubber. Um, and uh, yeah, so I've had, you know, a lot of really cool experiences. And I think one of the things about being, doing the research I do, which is on self-government and land claims, is a lot of the experiences and learning isn't done A through literature and books, but it's done through the amount of time I spend in communities. And unfortunately, the uh, mainstream academic environment doesn't really often appreciate the amount of time and energy and um, investment it takes in terms of spending time in these communities and getting to know people and earn trust and so forth. You know, a lot of academic literature you can either read or you just make your own observations about and, you know, so it can be done somewhat quickly or in an office, whereas uh, it's uh, very hard to, you know, 
compare, say, journal peer-reviewed uh, outputs and so forth, whenever a lot of what you, my work is is just relationship building. And a key component is going back to communities, right? It's not just showing up and going out in the land and hanging out. And it's relationship building. It's like them coming and staying with me here in Toronto or me going back a few times, you know, and uh, maintaining those relationships um, and being privileged enough to be part of those communities. So, um, yeah. I also had a student who did a really interesting project looking at deer hunting um, in the uh, Ontario parks down um, like Rondo and Pinery and so forth because Ontario has a deer problem um, in those parks and I actually wrote a paper about this which never unfortunately got published, uh, <laughs> and surprise, surprise. Um, it didn't get published? No. And but you tried try. to get it oh, published. Oh, a couple okay. times. Right. But it was, a, it was Just about wanted this. to clarify no, that. No, <laughs> yeah. I tried a few times. The academic reviewers don't gr understand, you know, some of the issues that one <laughs> engages in these communities. So their comments didn't really grasp what was the situation. But essentially what happened was under, I interviewed like, you know, Howard Hampton, a bunch of First Nations, because under the uh, government previously, they decided that with the overpopulation of deer, that they would, they had to have a problem, they had to have a deer call. But there was a politics to it, right? Because you didn't want to just go in and slaughter deer and the, you know, there's the Ontario hunters and anglers and other people to, to navigate and the locals. So they asked the First Nation because they thought, you know, it's traditionally their territory, it's their traditionally their habits, uh, you know, their food. Why don't we ask the First Nations to go in and do the deer call? And there was a humongous backlash, you know, like the, First Nations would go in and there'd be protests and then they'd find bullets put on the back of their bumpers that were not the right size of bullets. So then they'd call in, you know, the uh, officials to say, look, they're not using the right bullets, but in fact, these had been planted because, you know, you have to use certain guns and hunting mechanisms. And so there was a lot of backlash, but, um, and the Ontario government tried to call this co-management. You know, we're mm. working with the First Nations. And I kept saying, just because you're asking them to do it doesn't mean it's co-management because <laughs> they don't get to decide how much they how many deer they get, when they get to do it, or whatever. The government basically came in and told them when to do all this, or when they were allowed. And some years they were allowed, and some years they weren't. More like contractors. More like contractors, and more doing it, more trying to sell it as this is their culture, this is the way oh. they want to do. This is for you know, we're asking them to do it because it's more you know politically correct, as opposed to you know actually saying you know actually they have a, a right to hunt and fish. Like this is part of their traditional culture. So um, which you know you see in some parts of the country where because of the tensions, whether it be, you know, lobster fishing in Eastern Ontario or Eastern, you know, New Brunswick, where you've got indigenous peoples who can trap sometimes, you know, with their own quotas and licenses. And then you've got the other non-indigenous or settler fishers who are very angry, feeling they get more rights or they get to fish out of season. So you see a lot of tensions between fishers and hunters and anglers that are indigenous and non-indigenous, even though they often share very much the same approach, but there's a tension over, you know, licensing and regulations and when they can do it and quotas and purposes, you know, is it commercial? Is it, you know, for profit? Is it for personal use? Like, what are the options? So there's a lot of tension that emerges. And that was what was clear. Um, and I don't, I don't get in the academics. I don't know if they just were ready to grasp that. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of your specific research, because it wasn't, because you say it's on, uh, or more focused on self-government. So, and it, it's not necessarily based on hunting or fishing issues in terms of a specific no, it's issue. Not. What, so what is it, what, what do you specifically research then in terms like, and, and in terms of self-governance relating to the land and I, um, you do extractive right. industries main, is that your yeah, primary so, focus well, or? Yeah, what started it was working in Fort Chip outside the tar sands, right? And looking at the impact 
of that in terms of they had a land claim. What did they do with it? How do they generate businesses? How do they make decisions? And a lot of it was tied to this new development at the time, or this, which was the tar sands. And what I find interesting is that where there's extraction going on, like minerals or oil and gas, you often see an interesting dynamic with these communities because they have a huge decision to make. A lot of them need the economic development opportunities that come with these industries. So a lot of them want, say, jobs or um, some sort of support for better services. Uh, but sometimes this comes at a cost to their traditional environment and activities. Um, so while they want um, to engage in sort of the modern economy, they're also wanting to practice their traditional economy. But it's almost this, this catch-22. We want industry to come and operate in our territory, but then maybe 20 years later, they're no longer able to hunt and fish or trap for whatever reasons. And this definitely is the case in Fort Chip. When I went up there, we could drink the water of the lake, there was fishing, there was hunting, and now they're finding sick moose and they're finding deformed fish. And it's getting to the point they may not be able to practice those traditional rights. Um, and a lot of governance, in my opinion, especially dealing with indigenous communities, because you gotta remember culture is tied to land, it's tied to politics, it's tied to knowledge, it's tied to economics, it's not um, siloed off the way we do in sort of Western society, is to, deals with the land. So for instance, I worked on a really large international polar year grant, looking at the impacts of like oil and gas on Arctic peoples. And we worked with like biologists and geographers, and you might say, well, why would you look at biology? Well, simple thing like invasive species. You get a new plant, into the north and say, or a poison plant or something, and say a, a moose or caribou eats that and then they go hunting and how's that gonna affect the people who are hunting that and how does that affect their decision-making about land use planning and co-management agreements and how are they protecting those herds and what type of science are they drawing on and indigenous knowledge that they're drawing on and how are they making those governance decisions about whether or not they want to allow industry to operate in their territory, what types of industry they want to operate in their territory because some industries are considered maybe a little less uh, you know, extractive or less toxic to the land than others. Um, and you know what are what are the long-term goals for that community? So some communities are definitely like you know no we want development we want our youth to stay in community we want the jobs that's our number one goal. Others are like you know we're okay with this industry but we're not okay with that industry. So we're thinking we want to protect this area they can operate over here but we're not willing to sacrifice this because that's traditional and we want to see that as part of it. And then there's actually this weird melange where some people are using communities are using industry extractors engagement and then re taking that money or any profits they accrue and putting it back into like youth on the land training so it's almost like the best of both worlds in the sense of trying to engage with the modern economy but also in a, in a way that fuels the perpetuation of traditional economy so that's where really the use of the land the hunting as part of the culture comes into very much governance and land claim decision making processes which is what i investigate so i think of all of these things as complementary and it's almost like a, an, a self-government to me is like an onion. It's got many, many layers and you can't just simply compartmentalize the governance part of it because well, that's a Western way of perspective, <laughs> perspective and that's not the way indigenous peoples are articulating or even thinking about it in my experience at least. Yeah, and definitely when you were talking about the, the deer issue, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't a transference or a transformation of governance. Just no. a, using hired guns is what I called it in my okay, paper. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> They're indigenous people with the hired guns essentially to make it more palatable to the local population. Um, it was a, almost like a marketing ploy, if you will. It wasn't about giving them autonomy and decision making power or, you know, settling or claims or issues of sovereignty at all. It had nothing nothing to do with that. Yeah. And ironically I think it exacerbated because I 
because it comes every it's like the it's like the seal hunt it have because it's regulated and it's on a yearly rather than a ongoing basis as far as i understand or at least the controversy mm -hmm. I'll, I'll qualify and say the controversy <laughs> seems to be an annual thing um and on, that it that it yeah. that it see rather than rather than people rather than it either obviously i don't think the ontario government has an interest in transforming governance at a at a level that perhaps is required to be to be to deal or to address any sort of issue of colonization or I mean, settler but yeah. um it seems that sometimes it also exacerbates because as you're saying uh, even about the fisheries it seems to exacerbate the tensions between 100%. people who on any other given day if you were to remove racism from the equation would probably have no reason to come into like that heated of a conflict where you're you know where people are either actively protesting mm -hmm. an activity that hundreds of thousands of other ontarians do uh from september to december without typically even seeing anyone else <laughs> no uh, and so it's a yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry. No, it's definitely. I mean, and I think there's a lot more at play too. I mean, I grew up in a very rural community, you know, of farming and with, you know, like the deer, um, what are they, deer blinds everywhere, you know, everyone, you know, getting venison, everyone getting deer meat and stuff. Um, and, you know, I think there's definitely an urban rural dimension to this, um, you know, and then, but there's also the fact that a lot of hunters, you know, are not, you know, they're very responsible and, you know, they, you know, a lot of hunters don't always want government regulations in their lives. So, but they don't seem to understand that Indigenous peoples actually themselves a student just put it this way in class and it said, you know, it feels like indigenous peoples are actually being hunted by the state. They're the only group <laughs> in society that have so much legislation about what they can do, who they even are, who, how they can define themselves. Like no other group in Canada has that much focus by the state on them. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the, the lack of understanding by most Canadians, the average Canadian about the amount of constraints placed on them by indigenous people by the state. Um, you know, there's a sense that, oh, they have all these rights or they have all these privileges, but there's no understanding of actually, um, you know, the, the, well, I mean, we're learning more about residential school policy stuff, but it's much deeper than that. It's much more insidious than that. And unfortunately that lack of understanding and knowledge um, contributes to this um, conflict that can emerge. But what's fascinating is another project I was working on um, was actually looking at the impacts of fracking um, on in communities. And it is one of the only times I've seen First Nations and farmers and hunters and everybody come together <laughs> and say, no, we don't want fracking. And actually my colleague in the Australia and I were working on this. We again proposed a project that didn't get funded, but we're looking, wanting to look at almost, we called it almost like unholy alliances where previously groups that were at each other's, at odds with each other are suddenly allies because they share this common goal, which is to protect the land and protect the animals that are on that land from the impacts of fracking. And you see this, um, whether it be Keystone, right, with the right. farmers of Nebraska and the First Nations coming together, or in Australia with the Githable or the other first, the other indigenous groups um, uh, working with different communities in New South Wales, or here in Alberta, you've seen ranchers ally with First Nations against fracking. So this is a really interesting um, space and moment an event that actually has brought those communities together, which historically have been at loggerheads. So there are spaces that exist for alliances. Yeah, well, that and I think that's the, the perhaps was my political interest in it as well as in terms of hunting and fishing and use of the land uh, is that it it 
and I mean, and to be normative about it, like it, it should be a space of coming together, which I don't want it to make it sound that there isn't any disagreement or that it's some sort of utopian idea in that sense. But it, um, it, it, it seemed to be a, a spot and as a, and, and from an academic perspective of, of knowledge and that knowledge could be produced there that isn't, um, this is where my thought mm -hmm. on it ends, but it, 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 it's a different space for knowledge production that can perhaps lead to the various political and social transformations that the various groups who are either using that space, occupying it, or mm -hmm. not recognizing that they're occupying it for various re reasons yeah. uh, can come. Because I mean, ultimately, it, I mean, if you're talking about food, it's a very difficult thing to say, you know, it, Necessity can certainly be overthought what necessity means, but it's pretty difficult to live as a human without eating. So <laughs> Yeah, and it's interesting. Like when I was in Old Crow, they didn't stock a lot of processed meat up there because most people still relied heavily on country food. But when you see a lot of hunting in the north, it's actually done by a lot of Americans and a lot of southerners who pay big money. Like if you go to like Setil Airport or even sometimes coming out of Yellowknife. It's all Americans wearing full camo with big bags and like lots of um, you know gear and guns and so forth who come up there for some sort of trophy hunting. I don't know if you've read, but there's been a big issue about the cougar hunt currently going on in Alberta. Um, and so there's some, I think there's a less, much, less of a, um, a taste now for sort of hunting for hunting purposes as opposed to hunting for sustainability. Having said that, one of the issues in Canada is, I mean, other than the fact that the Indigenous peoples, um, you know, have a lot of um, barriers in terms of, for multiple reasons that other Canadians don't have, um, the, the courts in Canada have actually ruled in such a way as to suggest that Indigenous peoples can only hunt and trap in ways that existed pre-contact which is ridiculous. Um, I mean, no other group is like, you know, we don't, we don't say to hockey players, you need to play hockey the way you did in the 1920s without any gear or helmets, right? And any protective gear. We say, no, we've got advances in technology. Obviously you need to wear the best gear and the best skates and the best supports, right? We would never see this NFL like in the 1920s, <laughs> but the courts have said, no, 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 indigenous peoples, you have to, you cannot sell for profit. You cannot engage in this. You can only do it as you did pre-contact, which is, just ultimately bizarre. Um, and again, it shows another obstacle and barrier that we are imposing on indigenous peoples as they try and just, you know, support the, support themselves. You know, a lot of Canadians complain, well, why do indigenous peoples rely on the state or why can't they just take care of themselves? But then we put up these obstacles <laughs> so that they can't. And we're like, we went into these questions and it's kind of frustrating. Do you know the history or any more on the history on that, where that ruling came from? Like, was it a Oh, there's been a number yeah. of rulings. And Kira right. Leonard's a really good piece on it and so forth. Um, but um, yeah, that, that's, the, I would have to remind, remember the specific case law, but there's been a few court cases about okay, it. Okay, it's not it's, one no. decision, not no, one well, there decree was, per se. Though. Yes, it's like, it's sort of a, an ongoing, um, fossil, like we call it the fossilization of indigenous rights, basically. Okay. Right, um, but there's been a few cases, like whether it be in New Brunswick with the fishing, I think there was another case. Um, and recently, I mean, obviously what's interesting is the whole Métis now ruling um, under, is it the Daniels or Pauli case? I think it was a Pauli case, where in the courts have acknowledged that Métis now have a right to hunt. Um, and so that's kind of exciting, but it does expand the scope of, okay, what does this mean? How does this impact hunting regulations? Or how are we gonna deal with this? So yeah, it's interesting. It's a dynamic and changing environment, literally and figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I'll ask perhaps an unfair question, but it's one that uh, un unfair because it it's not a easy to answer, but it's one that I deal with too. In terms of uh, in terms of working with indigenous people from an academic uh, perspective or position, um, but also presumptively being uh, a settler, I won't. Yeah. Other than I that, am. okay. Uh, <laughs> how how do you how do you reconcile that mm. approach in terms of? Uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that rather than try to guide the question any no, further. No, I mean I get this a lot um, because I've been very um, lucky. So I hate to use the word lucky because it sounds like it's just fortuitous, but in, it just it erases all the hard work I put into what I do. I wouldn't <laughs> do that. Um, I think there's a couple of things at play. First of all. My parents are from Ireland. I learned about colonization from like the day <laughs> I was born, which is the you know the penal codes of Ireland were actually the model for the Indian Act of Canada, which was they took away our land, our language, and our political rights. Um, so I came from this sort of background. But having said that, um, you know, it takes a certain personality um, and person to work in the north. Uh, you know, I'm very. It's very. You have to be flexible and. Um, kind of go with the flow. Um, but having said that, I've been very blessed. I will say this is right, that's the right word because like I said, my first job was working for Miccosuke Cree. And I learned by being in the community. Uh, I mean, I before that I had, like I said, worked at Native Canadian Center. I had worked with, um, you know, people in Mount um, Tobik Reserve and St. Mary's Reserve. Um, so I got to know people. But living in the community, um, and going bush camping and just being there. Um, I got to know people and I was lucky enough to write my book and my PhD about that. And from there, I just, I remember going to a conference and sitting down across from someone who happened to be Joe Linklater, who happened to be the chief of the Buntuk Gwich'in and started talking to him. And I said, hey, you've been self-governing. You're one of the first in Canada. What have you done with that? He's like, why don't you come up and find out? I was like, okay. And I got some money from the government and I went up and did a research project. And then in Tuck, I had a, a great grad student. Her name is um, Jessica Simpson. She's uh, Dene from Wati First Nation. And we went up there together and she knew some people. So we got to talking around. And so I think, um, A, I think when people meet me, they can tell I have no ulterior agenda. Um, I'm pretty much what you see is what you get. And, you know, um, I feel like First Nation people can read me, like most people, like they can tell right away whether or not they're going to, it's like, okay, this person, you know, I'm going to engage with or I'm not. Um, and I think, so I think I have, I think I have no hidden agenda. I think I have a personality that is open and they can see that. And I think finally I've put, I've put my time in, I've spent time, I've built relationships, I've built friendships. Like these are my friends, you know, like um, I still correspond, we still talk on the phone. You know, we still see each other. So these are friendships. And as a result, um, it's a reciprocal. Like I give and I receive. And I guess that's, I've just been very blessed to be invited into communities. Um, I don't tend to go where I'm not invited. Um, and I had an experience with that recently where I was trying to go into a community and it was getting kind of like, a, mm, I'm not sure. And this other community kept asking me over and over again to come. And I was like, wait a second, why am I trying to go into one community? When this other community is like basically asking me to keep coming. And I was like, oh, right, you got to go through the door that's open, not the one that's closed. And so I think I've been very blessed in my research that I've been very much invited into different communities. I had like just even this summer, I was up in Whitehorse. 
and uh, I, my host invited these people over and they were like, what are you doing Saturday? I'm like, why? They're like, we're having this big potlatch. Why don't you come out to Klukshu, which is our traditional territory of Champagne Ajac and come to this really good, uh, this potlatch. And I was like, okay, sure. I'll be in Haynes Junction. And I went up to this potlatch and it was like a fantastic experience. So again, just being there, just being invited. I remember um, being in Fort McMurray once and getting a phone call saying, hey, Slowey, what are you doing today? And I was like, I don't know. And they're like, hey, do you want to come to a treaty signing? We're all going to Fort Smith and going to fit Fort Fitz's treaty signing. And I'm like, sure, that sounds like fun. Um, so I got on a plane with like, you know, Jim Boucher and Marlene Poitra and Chief George Poitra. And I was like, oh my God, I'm on a small plane with these really <laughs> amazing indigenous leaders. And I spent the day at the Fort Fitz treaty signing. I went to the Clicho treaty signing when I was up there um, where Kuchin was at. And just just happened to, I guess if you're in the communities, you just get, go with the flow and get invited to places and just show, showing up, I think is half of it, <laughs> you know, and being a person of your word, like being honorable and, and in indigenous communities, your reputation precedes you. So, you know, I think I've got a good reputation of, you know, working with people and listening and, you know, engaging. So I think I've just been blessed. And I'm very lucky that I'm teaching students now here at York because I actually have two students now working for the Nacho Nike Dunn Development Corporation in Whitehorse. Um, I had one student go up and she's now their community liaison officer. And then I got a phone call from them saying, hey, we really like this one student you have. Do you have any others you can send us? I was like, well, let me think about it for a while. And I couldn't. I had a group of students, I'm like, yeah, none of them are going to fit. And then one day out of the blue, the student walked in. She's like, I'm thinking of doing my master's. And I'm like, what are you doing right now? She goes, oh, I'm waitressing. I'm like, how do you want to go work in Whitehorse? And guess where she is? Started December 1st is working in Whitehorse for the Nacho Night Dunn. So she was just, the, I could tell she was the right fit. She was like, you know, she had led, you know, canoe expeditions across Canada. And so she had the right outdoors with also the, she'd taken my courses, so she knew about all you know, the Indian Act, impact benefit agreements, and do you consult? So she knew the landscape physically and academically. So yeah, so she's up there. So now I've got two of them up there, and so yeah, I keep getting calls. About so you're recruiting agency <laughs> yeah, as I well. Am. Another I'm another title. Yeah, so exactly. <laughs> but I think that's you know because they trust me because they know me and they know that I'll help them pick the right people and they need they need the capacity and the skill set that we have down here. But they also you know I'm mindful of sending the right people and so forth. So. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's, that's again the reciprocal, right? Like they're helping me, I'm helping them. So it's, it's good, it's, and it's relationship building. And you know, I think that's, that's one of the nice things. So it's about looking to the next generation too, who, who's gonna keep this work going. So in terms of uh, your role at Robarts and director, are yeah. you using that to like, in the, as a director, or is that kind of, or was that, I'm stumbling over my words here, but in terms of assuming the role as director, was that part of like as much plan. as much as a yeah yeah let's just say it's a grand plan. I don't mean obviously um, that, uh, but no, I mean or does uh, it assi- also or flip it? Does it does that open up uh, avenues to yes. to assist with your uh, your research goals oh. and and your well, my research political... is going to go wherever I want it to go. Um, no, the director of Robarts. Um, you know, the Department of Political Science at York is very much strong in its political economy focus, especially international political economy. And I, you know, as an empiricist and less of a theorist, um, was looking for a space to, you know, engage with maybe more like-minded academics who were actively engaged in field research and, you know, working in these areas. And um, since coming to Robards, and I think it's sort of, if you build it, they will come, you know, we've seemed to have developed a bit of a niche for a specific area being Arctic indigenous environmental research, 
So for instance, you know, we've got Anna Hudson here who's doing the, you know, mobilizing Inuit knowledge project and working with, you know, Arctic um, uh, sculptors and artists and so forth. We've got Carolyn Pradushni who does Métis uh, history. She's running this really cool project on Manitoulin Island in the summer school. We've got Christina Hoika who's, you know, chair of energy and sustainability. Um, we've got myself. So we're starting to, you know, Sean Karaje does environmental history. So we were starting to build this sort of um, nexus of environmental Arctic indigenous issues that I think is sort of lacking overall at York. Um, and it's interdisciplinary, which is theoretically what York's supposed to be, is a hub of interdisciplinarity. So we've got, you know, history and art and political science and energy and environment. And I think that's what's really exciting about the center now. And I can see it's growing momentum and moving forward that way. Um, becoming the director was just more of a opportunity um, and uh, I don't think it's done a ton in terms of my research having said that in the Yukon I know that they do appreciate it and we are gonna help we are supporting um, a very minor support very little but um, supporting them in the June fingers crossed I'll be running a um, umbrella final agreement spirit intent conference in the Yukon um, and I'm doing part of that as you know, director is, you know, we're trying to expand the reach of Robarts. Um, I'm also looking at working with Aurora College. Uh, what we want to do is have some sort of exchange where we ha they come down here for a week and we kind of deal with like institutional grant applications and how do you manage grants? Because as a college, they don't really know how to do that. And they have to partner usually with Southern U Universities. But then we would also reciprocate, they would reciprocate, we would send students up for a week on how do you do research in indigenous communities? How do you engage? What are some of the protocols you need to know? Um, so that would be a yin yang. And they, they're very keen, they keep emailing me saying, when are we gonna start setting this up? And so originally I was gonna do an indigenous governance certificate, but I'm like, been there, done that, everyone's doing that. But conducting research, research ethics and research grant writing is something that you know you need before you get there. So that seems to be the gap. And again, Rora College reached out to me when I was up in Yellowknife and I was talking with them. And so hopefully that's another niche that Robarts will be able to fulfill. Um, but we're really open, like we have a, quite a diaspora of interest here. As long as it's sort of Canadian oriented, um, mm -hmm. we like to support it. And I look at myself more as a facilitator and supporter of my colleagues and the interests here in the center, as opposed to um, leading the research per se, which I think is somehow what the research unions are supposed to do. But I, I think it's, um, yeah, I, like, I guess it goes back to working communities. I like to be bottom up as opposed to top down. What was the, at Dartmouth, what was that position? So that was, um, again, I was the inaugural, so the first, ever Fulbright Chair in Arctic Studies at Dartmouth. Um, so Fulbright Canada has an exchange program with the United States. And there are, diff there are, I think, 12 or 14 sort of chairships. And some of them are in Canadian studies, some of them are in like global or gender studies. There was one chair in Arctic Studies at the University of Washington. And uh, when I, a, a few years ago, um, when the American government took over the chairmanship of the Arctic Council, they created an Arctic Fulbright Initiative, wherein they chose two representatives from the circumpolar countries to come together on a team project and look at different themes like economic development, health, um, and other factors. And they worked in different teams to produce some reports for the Arctic Council. And I applied for that and was shortlisted to Washington. And it, I didn't get it. It went to two wonderful people, Greg Polzer and Susan Chatwood. Um, and but I got a phone call from. Well, Ottawa saying, listen, you were a very strong candidate. Could we encourage you to apply again and keep your application on file? I said, sure. So I applied again and got this 
lovely congratulations, you got the chair at Dartmouth. And I was like, that's exciting. And so I went to spend six months at Dartmouth. Um, it's supposed to be four, but I extended it because it was such a great experience. Um, for me, it represents um, sort of an acknowledgement, especially an international acknowledgement um, of this, where I'm at in terms of my level of expertise and in my career in terms of being recognized as someone who, because what Dartmouth was looking for is someone who had community relationships, someone mm. who was bringing that human dimension. There's a lot of study about ecology or the science of the Arctic, you know, climate, um, ice thickness, a lot of science going on, you know, flora, fauna, animals, but there isn't an understanding again, as you were asking, but the connection the between- The people live there too. Uh, the people, exactly. <laughs> who, who lives there, who's eating there, who has the knowledge about these plants, who's hunting, who, you know, what are some of the issues that they're experiencing as the people who live there, 100%. That's what Dartmouth was looking for. And I brought that in spades and they loved it. Like I gave lots of talks and, and you know, taught a few lot classes. And um, I mean, just even the fact that the students were learning about the Arctic, but then I could bring in the Canadian. Uh, of course, I've been to Norway and to Greenland and to Alaska. Um, and make it comparative for them. But uh, the Dartmouth for me was an acknowledgement of where I am in my career, um, you know, international, I guess, eminence, but also um, just wanting to bring that people dimension to Dartmouth and ongoing relationships with the Dickey, it's called the John Sloan Dickey Center for International Understanding. And that's where their Arctic Institute is held. Mm. Um, and so they're actually doing another competition next year um, for this in our Fulbright Arctic Initiative. They've decided to keep going. And so Ross Virginia, who was actually my director at Dartmouth, he's leading it. Um, and so there was another call and there are six of us who have been shortlisted to, to Washington. And we find out in the next couple months whether or not we're going to be, who's going to be selected. Um, now, typically you aren't supposed to be able to Fulbright as quickly after you're supposed to have a waiting period. However, they said if I could make a case for why I should be given an exemption, that they would consider it. So, I mean, if there's other candidates who've never done it before, it'll obviously go to them. But my case was that I, when I was at Dartmouth, I started this project. And since then, I've been to Yellowknife and Whitehorse twice, pitched the project, got the communities involved. So now it's really going to hit the ground. And so the momentum is there that if, and one of their connections and focus next time is communities that maybe that this would be something that appeals to them. We'll see. I don't know yet. Well, good luck. <laughs> Thank you. When do you, when would that be uh, announced? Oh, or soon. when are you notified? Uh, and then I, I, I think the last time I found out in March. So yeah, sometime soon, but I'm not thinking about that. I've got so much to do. Yeah. That. <laughs> I have a lot more on my plate by Monday before I do that. There's a hunting or fishing story that you would like to share just to mm. wrap it up. Hmm. And you mentioned fly fishing, so it can be an, an actual like fishing story. The fish was okay. bigger. The okay. fish was bigger definitely. than it was. Like then that. I definitely have a good one. So <laughs> where I, when so we are trying to catch and release, and where I fish, um, there's sort of that's that's a management decision or um, or yes. Well, yes, I, yes, I believe so. Um, and um, where I fish, there's another camp right beside us so but and they have their own areas that they can fish in we have our own areas they can fish in but some one of them one of the pools is particularly close to each other and I remember uh, this one particular time we were out in the canoes and I was at this is portage and it's considered a really good pool and I was you know casting 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 in the morning and within a few moments I had a fish on the line and I bought it in and we got into the boat and we measured it and it was small. It was like seven or eight pounds. And I'm like, oh, I love a seven or eight pound salmon. And my guide was like, no, no, no. You know, we have to throw it back. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, no problem. So we unhooked it and we threw it out. Okay, so that's fine. So we're 
fishing, 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 and about maybe less than half an hour later, I throw up my line, and sure enough, I get another fish. And I bring it in, and we get it in the boat, and it's about 12, 10 to 12 pounds, which is like, again, ideal for salmon. And I'm like, oh, you know, my son's birthday's coming up. I really would love to have some salmon at his birthday party. And my guide's like, no, no, this is fine. This fish is gonna live. We're gonna throw it back out. Meanwhile, like the people beside us in their boat are like looking at me like, this is a crazy lady. Cause they're like <laughs> wanting to keep their fish. And they're like, what is she, did she catch another one? And so I throw it back out. Literally like less than 20 minutes later, I throw up my line and I get another one. And these people are freaking out behind me. They're like, oh my God. They're like moving their canoe to put it behind me. And I'm, ca- cause they think they'll catch whatever I've let go. And I, and this one though, this is the, the mother load of fish. Like I am out, it's, it's playing the line. I'm bringing it in, you know, I've got my rod up, my tips up. It's going out, it's coming back in. It's going, you know, it's going under the boat and we're like, ah, and, you know, getting around. And so like after like, God, I think I took me like 30 or 40 minutes to land this thing. Holy cow. Right. So we finally, finally get it like in the net and get it in the boat. And this thing is huge. It ended up being the largest fish caught on the river that year. Wow. I think it was 25 or 26 pounds. <laughs> so I was saying like how I'd caught like the child, the mom, and like this was the grandma or whatever, of fish. And we get in the boat and I'm like, oh, are we throwing it back? And the guy's like, no, no, no. It's a throw maguine. It's a popasib. You know, like it's. We played it too much. It's going to die. Right. Like you right, can't, yeah. you can't keep it. I mean, you can't throw it back. We have to keep it. And I was kind of like secretly kind of happy because I was like, <laughs> yeah, except an old fish and a big fish like that isn't always as tender. Yeah. They're and not as, as tasty. Tasty. But I, I was not one to complain. Yeah. Um, but you can imagine the people behind me were just the men behind, cause it was all men, right? First of all, they're like women fishing. Like what is going on? And second of all, she's caught two and thrown them back. And now she's caught three. Like that was it. Like their, their minds were exploding. Like you could hear the, them talking behind us. Like they just, they totally lost it. But yeah, I caught the largest fish on the, on the river that year. And I was very excited. Wow. Cool. Well, thank yeah. you. That was a, that was a, an excellent fish story. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for doing this. My and, pleasure. Uh, Maybe we'll, uh, in the future, have an update on how things are going. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, (laughs) bye-bye.